Thank you, Ben. So that was a pretty good recap of uh, what I was preaching on a few Sundays ago. We're looking at the seven words or the seven sayings that Jesus uttered from the cross. You know, Jesus spent a lot of His ministry teaching and saying important things. And here on the cross, we can kind of look at it as Jesus' last opportunity to teach before His death, burial, and resurrection. And a few Sundays ago, before I took a little hiatus, we looked at the first three of these sayings. We looked at a word of forgiveness, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We looked at a word of the future, where He promised the thief being crucified with Him. Today you will be with me in paradise. And we looked at a word on family, as Jesus looked at His mother Mary and said, you know, here John is your son, and John here is your mother, giving Mary into his care and keeping. And in these first three sayings, we see that Jesus is focusing on the people around him. He's focusing on forgiveness for his enemies who are putting him to death. We see his focus on a promise of hope and eternal life to this thief, and we see this word of provision and care for his grieving mother. Well, the next two sayings we're going to look at today also speak to us of, as Ben said, Jesus' divine nature but also His human nature. We're going to see the eternal weight of our sin and the incomprehensible grace of God to meet every need of our life. So before we dive into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this time in Your Word, and we pray that Your Spirit would fill us and speak to us. God, we pray that You'd be glorified in everything that's said. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, the first thing we're going to look at is a word from one forsaken. A word from one forsaken. We're going to begin in verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So hours had passed since Jesus uttered His previous word from the cross, His word about His mother Mary. And for the last three hours, as Jesus hung in silence, darkness covered all the land. And finally, after three hours, Jesus breaks His silence with a loud voice quoting from Psalm 22, which was our Old Testament reading. And Psalm 22 is a profound, prophetic psalm written a millennium before these events, yet so powerfully displays for us what Jesus suffered and endured on the cross. It was three in the afternoon. Jesus hasn't slept in at least 36 hours. He's not had anything to eat or drink since the Lord's Supper was initiated the night before. He's had very little to drink, if any. Earlier that day, after his mock trial, he was beaten. He was mocked by Roman soldiers. He was abused multiple times. He had his beard ripped. He had a crown of thorns thrust into his brow. He was whipped with a Roman cat of nine tails as it flayed the flesh from his back and sides. He was forced to carry his cross as far as he physically could. 
And then when they arrived on top of Golgotha, He was stripped. He was nailed to the cross and hung there exposed for all to see, for the passing crowds who came by to continue to mock Him. So it's no wonder that Psalm 22 was prominent in his mind. He was fulfilling that very prophecy along with Isaiah 53 that describes the suffering servant. In fact, if we didn't have any of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, we could still understand the events that happened just from those two passages from the Old Testament. They so vividly describe for us what Jesus endured on Calvary. And so here crying out, interestingly enough, in his native language, Aramaic, you have to understand that in the Middle Eastern world you had Latin, which was the language of Rome, and so that was the language of law and government in, in, in Rome, in the Roman military. You had the Greek language, which was the language of commerce. That was sort of like English today. It was the language that united everybody. Everyone knew Greek. So if you wanted to talk to people from different backgrounds and races, Greek was kind of that common language of the day. Hebrew was the language of Torah. It was the language of of reading and studying the Word of God. It was the language of the temple and the synagogue. But Aramaic was sort of just the vernacular. It was the native language that the people in, in Israel spoke, a holdover from their time in Babylonian captivity. And so Aramaic was the language that Jesus grew up learning. It was the language He spoke at home with Mary and with Joseph. And when you think about that His last words were about unto His mother and now He's crying out, not, in, not quoting it in Hebrew but in Aramaic, it's as if Jesus is going back to the things that are comforting to Him. Home and family. His childhood. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus choose these words from Psalm 22? Why did He utter them now? What does He mean by this? Was this, as some think, a cry from Jesus' humanity, dismayed and doubtful and disappointed because His Father has left Him to die in the hands of sinful men? Was it because God the Father turned His back on His only begotten Son? Well, I don't think it was a cry of despair from Jesus' humanity. I think it was a cry of vindication from His divinity. It was an expression of the spiritual reality, momentarily though it was, that Jesus, bearing our sin and shame, experienced the separation from God that we deserved. It's no wonder that the people at the cross that day were confused by what He said. And they hear Him saying, Eli or Eloi, uh, in Aramaic, and they think, oh, He's calling for Elijah. They're confused about it. We can kind of be confused about it. It's probably, of all the things He said from the cross, the most mysterious because it is a cry spoken from God the Son to God the Father. And I think only in the context of the Trinity, only God Himself really understands what Jesus is saying here. But I do think there are some things we can learn, we can pull out from the text as we look at this. And the first is we can see that it was a purposeful word. It was a purposeful word. Jesus is directly quoting Psalm 22.1. So this isn't some spontaneous cry of despair or doubt. 
That's not what this is. This was a deliberate statement. Now, true, it conveyed what Jesus is feeling. It was true to what Jesus was experiencing. But Jesus chose these words from Scripture to say at this moment to convey to us what He was accomplishing in that moment on the cross. It was a purposeful word. Secondly, it was an isolating word. This, this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls upon God, not as Father, but He simply calls upon Him as God. The only place. It's as if Jesus was calling upon God as simply the Creator, the most common ground upon which humans can address God. He's our Creator. It's the lowest level of relationship we can have with God. He's our Maker. Even the, the atheist is related to God in the terms of Creator and created. It's the lowest level. Because you see, when we're lost in our sin, we cannot claim God as our Father. He's our Creator. He's our Judge. But in a spiritual sense, He is not our Father. Paul tells us our natural status before God as human beings are enemies of God. Not children of God, but he says children of wrath. We are wicked, lost, sinful. We deserve judgment and death and hell. We come into this world as the creation of God, but we are not yet the children of God. And so Jesus, identifying with sinful humanity, who can only address God as God, that's what he says. As if, like ours, his relationship with the Father has been broken. It was a cry of utter isolation and loneliness to a level that none of us could even begin to imagine. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus did not lose sight of the fact that He is eternally God the Son. Okay? Jesus does not, never has, never will cease to be God. Even on the cross, He is still God. But what God the Son is doing here, voluntarily, intentionally, He is taking our place. He is setting aside His full rights of sonship and He refuses to take advantage of the divine rights that are His. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He talks about Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, He didn't see His place as God the Son as something that He should use to His advantage, that He should take advantage of for Himself. Instead, Paul says He emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of sinful humanity. And when He had come as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was an isolating word. God the Son voluntarily aligned Himself with us and took our place as those who are separated from God. Secondly, or thirdly, it was an understanding word. It was an understanding word. Yes, Jesus, in quoting this psalm, asks the question, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But listen, Jesus is not confused about what's happening here. Jesus fully understands and is willingly submitting to everything He is experiencing on the cross. He's no victim. Jesus isn't hanging there wondering, God, why are you doing this to me? No, Jesus knew and understood the mission from eternity past. And remember, multiple times He foretold these events to His disciples. 
In Matthew 17, it says, As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and on the third day He will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus is explaining ahead of time what He's going to do, that He's going to willingly lay down His life of His own accord. He says, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I received this command from my Father. So this fourth word from the cross wasn't one of despair or doubt or disappointment or confusion. Rather, it was a word of confidence in the Father. He is confident because Jesus knows the cross isn't the last word. Jesus knows that Sunday's coming. It's a word of confidence, not confusion. It's a word of understanding. And finally, it was a reconciling word. Here Jesus reveals the terrible price paid so that our sins could be atoned for. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was abandoned so we could be accepted. He was rejected so that we could be received, punished so we could be pardoned. He was left behind so that we could be gathered in. He was wounded so that we could be healed, and He died so that we can live. That's what happened on the cross. As we heard in our New Testament reading in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God, He made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul further says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We call this the great exchange. On the cross that day, Jesus took our place. He paid our penalty. He suffered the wrath of a holy God. Wrath that our sins earned. Wrath that we alone deserved. And in exchange, God gives us what we don't deserve and could never earn. His favor, His love, a clean slate, and abundant and eternal life. Jesus became sin that we might become God's righteousness. Jesus was cursed that we might be blessed. And for that to happen in a very real sense, Jesus suffered hell on that cross. He experienced the isolation and separation from God that we deserve to experience in hell. Now, it was only momentary, right? It has only lasted for a brief time. But remember, we're talking about an eternal God, an infinite being of holiness and love, eternally three in one, from eternity past to eternity future in a relationship of oneness in the Trinity we can't even begin to fathom. So yes, in those few hours on the cross, Jesus suffered an eternity's worth of hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. And this moment of isolation, of being forsaken and abandoned by God the Father, it rippled through creation itself. Matthew and Mark tell us from noon till three there was darkness. Now, this wasn't some eclipse. This is Passover. Passover happens on a full moon. This was not some natural phenomenon. This was supernatural. This was a spiritual darkness that creation itself exhibited as if it is sympathizing with its Creator in grief. 
Noon to three would normally be the brightest, hottest time of the day, yet it's covered in darkness because the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, was alone on that cross bearing the guilt and shame of us all. I think it's interesting that with Christmas and Advent, what do we associate with it? We associate light with it. We light candles. We have lights on our Christmas tree. We talk about the light of the world stepping down into darkness. We think about the the radiance of the angelic hosts and the star of Bethlehem. And just as we associate extraordinary light with Christmas, extraordinary darkness accompanied the death of Jesus. Light at His birth darkness at His death. Because Jesus came to sit in our darkness with us. It's the only way we could walk in His light. Micah 7-8 tells us, Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And of course we know Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So no matter what darkness you may find yourself sitting in, Jesus has sat there with you. And because He did that, we can call upon God our Father to shine His light into our hearts and know that He will not leave us or forsake us. We are not abandoned. Because of the cross, we are not abandoned. We are not destroyed. Because of the cross, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's hard for us to imagine what it meant for Jesus to be isolated and alone, forsaken by God on that cross. Think about it. Not only had Jesus' disciples, His his dearest, closest friends for three and a half years, not only did they abandon Him, not only did the people of Israel reject Him as their King and Messiah, but now it seems as if God the Father has walked away. People often describe this moment as God turning His back on His Son because He couldn't bear to look upon the sin and the shame that He took upon Himself for us, that Jesus became sin itself. And I've been studying and reading commentaries on this passage to help me understand this. And and certainly that view of it can help us understand the cost, the price that Jesus paid for us on the cross as He substituted Himself for us. But I think it misses the mark in helping us to understand the complexity and power of what's happening in this moment. We need to see the entirety of what the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit experienced in that moment that Jesus hung on the cross. So as one commentary I I read, the authors wrote, to his last breath, Jesus was conscious that He was the well-beloved of the Father. Like I said earlier, at no point was Jesus doubting or unaware of who He was as God the Son. At no point. Here at Calvary, God in Christ is carrying His own wrath on our sin. He carried it to the depth of death, suffering man's sin in the act of destroying Himself beyond which sin cannot go. Sin died with Jesus. The cry from the cross let the world know that suffering of this depth was happening to the Godhead. The full Godhead was involved in bearing the sin of the world at a cost so inconceivable as to mean the death of the Son of God. This cost affected the full Trinitarian aspects of God. The Father suffered in that He gave His Son 
He sacrificed His only begotten Son. Anyone as a father, can only, we can only begin to imagine what that must have been like for God the Father. God the Son, of course, suffered the suffering, the shame, the death on the cross. And even God the Spirit suffered being associated with all of the pain and all of the sin and ills of humanity for the centuries to come as He dwells on this earth through us. And let's, let's be honest, we, we don't always have it all together, do we? Yet He's patient and endures with us. Yet Jesus experienced a separation that we as sinners deserve so that we might receive reconciliation. That's what the cross does for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. David Platt writes, Before the cross we were cast out of God's presence. Because of the cross, we are now invited into God's presence. That's why the temple veil, that, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that's why it was torn in two. Because sinful people who have no right whatsoever to walk into the presence of God, sinful people who in no way can lift up clean hands and a pure heart before the throne of God, we are now invited into the very presence of God. We can approach His throne of grace with boldness because of what Jesus did for us. David Platt goes on to write, What happened on the cross was so much more than a naked man dying on a wooden post on the side of the road in a nondescript part of the world. This was the holy God of the universe, giving His Son to die our death, endure our condemnation, and suffer our separation so that we could be declared righteous and welcomed into His presence. Amen? So this word from the cross speaks to Christ's spiritual anguish on our behalf. But the next word speaks to His physical anguish. This word talks about the spiritual suffering of God the Son, the Son of God. But the next word talks about the physical suffering of the Son of Man. So next we look at a word of frailty. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John 19, Jesus has just spoken to his mother and to John. Woman, here is your son. Man, here is your your mother. And it says in verse 28, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. This exchange between Jesus and his mother and then saying, I'm thirsty, are probably some of the most human moments that we see from Jesus on the cross. They remind us that he really is Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation is on full display here as Jesus cries out for a drink, for water, something so basic, so human, so necessary for life. This is the shortest of the seven sayings. In fact, in the Greek, it's only one word. Yet it says so much to us. If we look back at the beginning of Jesus' crucifixion, in Matthew 27, 34, it tells us they gave Him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when He tasted it, He refused to drink it. 
What they give, gave him at the beginning of his crucifixion was a drugged wine. And the purpose of it wasn't merciful. It's not that they were just trying to deaden the pain and make this not as bad an experience. No, they gave this to criminals to prolong the suffering, to keep them from passing out, to keep them conscious the entire time they're dying on the cross. It was not an act of mercy. Yes, it, it deadened your senses somewhat, but it kept you from passing out from the pain. Jesus refused this bitter wine because He needed to, wanted to experience the full suffering and shame on the cross on our behalf. He wanted to be in complete control of His faculties and die on His own terms. Jesus here on the cross was working. He was doing the very work He came to do. And He was going to be in His right mind the whole time and He was going to die on God's timetable, not Rome's. And now hours have passed and Jesus is severely dehydrated. So He asks for a drink and He accepted the sour wine the soldiers offered. This was a vinegar wine. This was different than the, the, than the, uh, the, the wine mixed with gall. This was a sour, a sharp drink. Not to deaden and dull the senses, but to sharpen them. Jesus wanted not only to have His mind sharpened in this final moment, but He wanted His, his voice wetted so that He could make His final cries, which we'll look at next week. It's profound when we think of Jesus needing something to drink, right? I mean, the one who quenches our thirst was thirsty. The source of living waters needed something to drink. Jesus' humanity is on full display. Every one of us can relate to being thirsty, right? We know what that's like. But beyond an expression of a very real human need, again, Jesus is making an intentional statement. He doesn't say or do anything on the cross just as a reaction. Everything He does is proactive. He says, I'm thirsty, according to John, to fulfill Scripture. Even in His time of need, even in His suffering and thirst, Jesus is thinking about the mission. He's thinking about why He came. He's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about the glory of the Father. He's fulfilling Prophecy in Psalm 22:15. We've already looked at this morning. It says, "My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death." And in Psalm 69:21, it says, "Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink." Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so here Jesus, in complete control of His faculties throughout His suffering and up to His death, made sure He did just that. He was going to die according to the Scriptures. Even the hyssop that was held up, that had the sponge of vinegar wine on it, that was held up to His lips, even that fulfills Scripture. When we go back to the original Passover, when God gives Moses instructions so that the plague of death would pass over the house of the Israelites, listen to what he tells them. Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter this Passover animal, this Passover lamb. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel and the two doorposts 
with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. And here we are at the cross, seeing hyssop used in the context of our Passover lamb as he was being slain. That with the application of his blood on the doorway of our own hearts, we too might have the judgment and wrath we deserve pass over us and we can be saved and become God's own people. The Jewish Passover is fulfilled in the sacrifice of the true Paschal Lamb. And there's more rich symbolism that we can see here beyond Jesus' very real, very real thirst, His very real physical need. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed that the cup of death the cup of suffering and wrath would pass from him. Remember that? He prayed it three times. And at the end, he said, he submitted to the Father, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Well, John's Gospel tells us that shortly after that, Judas arrives with the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And you remember what Peter did? Peter pulls out a sword and goes on the attack, cuts off a guard's ear, Jesus heals it, and Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, in John 18, 11, he said, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Listen. Jesus did drink that cup. He drank it to the dregs, the suffering, and the wrath that was ours to drink. It was a bitter, sour cup of death. And in this cry of frailty from His humanity... As the psalmist prophesied, Jesus has come to His lowest ascent from the heights of heavens to a practical hell on this cross. And Jesus in a few moments is about to die. And with Him He would take our sin and our death to the grave once for all. Now, as I conclude, will you allow me to jump ahead a little bit in the story to the end? Can we jump ahead to Easter for just a moment? I know it's a couple of weeks away. But how can we ignore the end of the story, especially as we consider Psalms 22 and 69 that Jesus has quoted, that Jesus has intentionally fulfilled on the cross? Because both of those psalms, though they're about the suffering and the death of Jesus, they end with a word of hope, with a word of victory and vindication. In Psalm 22, I'm just going to read verses 25 through 31. You've already heard much of this psalm and how... Well, vividly it explains and expresses what Jesus suffered. Yet beginning in verse 25, it says, I will give praise in the great assembly. Because of you I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before Him, even the one who cannot preserve His life. Their descendants will serve Him. The next generation, that's you and me, will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what He has done. And in Psalm 69, verses 30 and 32 through 34, it says, I will praise God's name with song and exalt Him with thanksgiving. The humble will see it and rejoice. You who seek God, take heart. For the Lord listens to the needy and does not despise His own who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Amen.
because Jesus was forsaken, you can be forgiven. Because Jesus chose to be abandoned, you can be accepted. Whenever you feel alone, abandoned, forgotten, know that Jesus has been there. He understands what you're feeling and what you're going through. He suffered far greater things on the cross than we could ever begin to imagine so that you could be brought home to God, so that you could move from being creation to being a child of God, so that you could be forgiven and given a second chance and a clean slate. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if today you don't know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you belong to Jesus, that you are a child of God, that you do have that promise of eternal life, then I invite you to come here this morning and settle that and know today whose you are. Because that's why Jesus died for you. Jesus was thirsty so that He could quench your thirst. He came and experienced human frailty so that in our weaknesses, His strength may be perfected so that His grace would be sufficient for us. You see, God created you and He created you to desire Him. So only in Jesus Christ can the deepest desires and longings and thirsts of your heart be met. And Jesus wants to quench your thirst. He wants to satisfy your longings. He wants to meet your needs. But you have to trust Him. Even as believers, even as Christians, we can find ourselves turning to the things of this world to quench our thirst. And guess what? They fail every time, don't they? Maybe today God is calling you to come and recommit your life to Him and say, Jesus, forgive me for turning to the pleasures of this world and and, and, and money and stuff and job and, and accolades. Forgive me for turning to these things when you alone are the only one that can quench my thirst. Come and renew your walk with Him today. Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this church or maybe He's calling you into ministry and you want to surrender to that call and obediently follow Him. Whatever the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, let's be obedient to Him today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for the power of Your Word and the power of the cross and what Jesus came to endure and accomplish for us. And for You, for Your glory, Father. God, I pray that Your Spirit would speak to our hearts and reveal to us what You would have us to do because of the Word that we've heard spoken this morning from Scripture. Father, help us to trust in what Jesus did for us that we can be forgiven and accepted by You. Help us to turn to Jesus alone to meet our needs and to quench our thirsts. God, may we not only be obedient in this moment, but in every moment as we go out these doors until you bring us back again next week. In Jesus' name we pray.